1: Hello everyone and welcome to the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Nash. On today's episode, we're having a conversation with Kristen Alolis. She's a certified nutrition educator and works as a nutrition consultant. She's been published in the New York Times, The Atlantic, Newsweek, Vice, Huffington Post, and Civil Eats as well as in academic journals, such as the Black Scholar, Critical Quarterly, and the New Labor Forum. She's joining the Zero Waste Countdown today for a conversation all about her new book. It's called Formally Known as Food, How the Industrial Food System is Changing Our Minds, Bodies, and Culture. Uh, Kristen, how, how did food become so important to you?
0: Well, I think it started with my own kind of personal journey to understand nutrition and my own health. And I decided to go to school to study it formerly. I'd been working as a writer in New York City and decided to find a school where I could study nutrition. So I actually came back, came out to California, this college in Berkeley, California, to study holistic nutrition. And um, I realized that there was a lot I had misunderstood about nutrition as, as so many of us have been confused by conflicting dietary information and all the experts telling us conflicting information, and in many cases, the industry itself misguiding us in terms of what's actually healthy food. So once I learned all about that, I just embarked on my own research uh, over the past roughly 10 years and incorporated it into my writing, and that's what I've been doing.
1: It's so true that we get so much conflicting information that I think people just don't know what to eat. And so they just eat whatever's easy and convenient and try to block out the information because Mm -hmm. it's like everything is bad, it seems, you know? And that's not really true. It's just uh, we hear so much stuff. In the book, I noticed that you actually pointed out specific companies which I thought was so cool like I applaud you for that because in the zero waste world I think businesses are the problem with producing so much trash and Mm -hmm. it's businesses that are going to solve it so I I thought that was really cool but were you ever nervous that maybe like a corporation would maybe give you trouble for mentioning their names
0: no (laughs) no I'm not nervous I mean it's possible if the book gets enough traction that they will um, you know, they, I have colleagues that work in the same field, and definitely companies come after journalists and researchers and even scientists sometimes, too, um, who point out that, you know, what their companies are doing are harmful to people and to the planet. Um, so it's definitely a possibility, but no, I, I, don't, feel, I don't feel nervous about it at all. I feel like it's, it's my job as a journalist to call out these companies and just, just as citizens of the, you know, of the world, we need we have an obligation to protect uh, our planet and our bodies, and if that entails getting into sort of some trouble with these big corporations, so be it.
1: You mentioned in the book that there is a big difference between what your grandmother used to eat and then what kids are eating today for breakfast, and we actually saw recently in the news that Cheerios and I think the other company was Quaker Oats, maybe, uh, mm-hmm. that it was found they had some bad chemicals in it. Um, so what what is the main difference between what your grandmother used to eat and what kids eat today?
0: I point out in the book, I, my, my grandmother, who lived to be 97 years old, she was really healthy, always ate a natural whole foods diet, not because it was, like, trendy or cool. It was just the way she ate. It was the way she grew up eating. And when I would talk to her about organics, you know, later in her life, obviously, She would say, oh, I never eat organic, but look at me, I'm so healthy. And I had to point out to her that actually you did eat organic. It just wasn't called that then. That's what all food was, organic by default. It was food that was grown um, in healthy soil. It wasn't sprayed with toxic chemicals. It wasn't mass produced and had all these additives and chemical preservatives and environmental toxins added to the food. So there's this huge difference between what she ate growing up, which, you know, she was born in 1918, and wow. what what I ate grow, growing up, or I have a baby now who's just born this year, um, the kind of food that, you know, if we don't kind of protect him from the onslaught of all these foods, the kind of foods that he'll be eating as he grows up, it's, um, it's a completely different food landscape from when my grandmother was growing up.
1: Absolutely, and we're finding such bad things about some of the ingredients which aren't listed on mm-hmm. the packages. So why mm-hmm. why are companies getting away with this?
0: Well, it's a good question, but um, unfortunately what I uncovered in a lot of my research and talking to dozens of scientists is that The regulatory agencies, so that's the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, or the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, they're supposed to be the ones overseeing what goes into the food. So like the Food and Drug Administration looks at all the different food ingredients while the EPA looks at things like pesticides, herbicides, fungicides that are sprayed on food crops and then, of course, end up on the final food products themselves. So we have a situation now where the regulatory agencies Are not doing the job to protect their jobs to protect public health even though that's what we pay them to do we pay them our tax dollars to do this but what they have very cozy relationships with the industries the food industries the agriculture industries and the chemical industries that manufacture um, all kinds of chemicals that end up in the food including food packaging which I talk about a lot in the book and those cozy relationships um, cause the regulatory agencies to, you know, what I've uncovered is that they cause them to not do their job correctly. And they're not looking at the most cutting edge science in the labs. One thing I think consumers don't know is that manufacturers are actually providing their own data. So this means that, so say, for example, you have a chemical like BPA, which I think a lot of people are familiar with, because you'll see labels like BPA free on plastic bottles. So this Mm -hmm. is a a chemical that is a known endocrine-disrupting chemical, which means it interferes with the hormonal systems in the body. It's in many plastics, and it leaches from the plastic into the food. So, for example, that's, so if you take BPA as an example and you think about how did that chemical get approved to be used in all these foods, in all the substances that are in contact with our food? Well, the manufacturer does the testing itself. So this is part of... Um, this is legislation that is supposed to be there to, so that the consumer doesn't have to pay taxes to, for all this expensive research. And so the manufacturer does their own testing in their own labs. They hire their own scientists. And then they present the data that they find to, the, say, the FDA. Now, that can you could see how that could raise issues with conflict of interest because the manufacturer has no incentive to show any harm, with their own chemicals. And mm-hmm. so a lot of the scientists I talk to that are independent scientists, these are the ones that are doing research in academic labs and they have no industry interest. They're finding all kinds of harms from these types of chemicals. And they they feel like that's completely unfair to the public and the public health because why isn't the regulatory agency looking at the independent science that these science they're doing. And um, unfortunately, that's just not the way it's set up right now.
1: So if a company submits a report saying BPA is safe in our canned food or whatever, is there no mm-hmm. one from the EPA or the FDA that is looking at that research to say it's wrong or right?
0: Well, they're looking at it. They're de- they definitely look at it, but it's up for debate in terms of how uh, critically they're looking at it. And they're definitely not replicating the study so that was something Mm -hmm. another one of the researchers was really adamant about is um okay so maybe the company comes up with these findings but then shouldn't an independent body replicate that finding and make sure it's correct and right now that's not happening
1: that's really scary and it should be right Because there's a lot of things that are going in there that are really bad. And uh, you did talk about BPA in your book a little bit, which is cool, because uh, as part of the zero waste lifestyle, we we don't like packaging. You know, yeah, buy some, right. buy apples, buy potatoes, like you can buy all this good, healthy food that doesn't come mm-hmm. in packaging. And something that you said kind of stuck out to me. Um, I can't remember the exact words, but it was like, if, if the package has a claim
0: mm-hmm. on it,
1: it's probably not that healthy for you.
0: <laughs> right. So right, so any I mean that that's it's any food product that claims to be healthy on some kind of packaging is generally not that it's generally not good for you it's generally not healthy the kinds of foods that are actually good for you you won't see much in terms of of um of claims like you mentioned you won't even see much packaging like any kind of um vegetable fruit you know whole grains, beans, legumes, all these things you buy in bulk, even uh, meat that comes from humanely raised farms and pasture based farms where they're taking care of the land, taking care of the animals these kinds of foods you they don't have these huge labeling claims with bright flashy things on the front and then and so when you see that, it's kind of an indication that someone's trying to sell you something and it's probably not true
1: and wouldn't it be nice if there were signs behind? tomatoes that said L- look how healthy these are and look at all the vitamins right. and minerals right and like we don't want packaging right. around a single tomato because it's wasteful but if there's just maybe like a chalkboard in the produce right. produce section right
0: yeah that would be that would be a great idea and I know there are these zero waste I don't know if you talked about them in your show um, supermarkets popping up around the world um, without any kind of packaging which I think is so amazing yeah BPA is everywhere I think the CDC found That it's in nearly every single American that was tested, they found it in their bodies. So it's very pervasive. The problem, also, with BPA that I talk about in my book is that even when you see a labeling claim like BPA free, what happened is the industry actually replaced BPA with bps which is a similar it's a related compound has similar negative effects in the body but because consumers became aware of bpa because so many especially mom like mom groups were really upset about the fact that it was in so many many kid foods because bpa is especially harmful to kids and babies and fetuses in the womb So the companies, instead of using BPA, they use BPS, and it's just as bad, but they use it as a marketing claim because they can now say BPA-free even when it contains something similar. So this is a a big part of my argument where this is the problem when you let the manufacturers determine how they're going to change their behavior when it really should be we should have strict regulations on these kinds of chemicals to protect the public health.
1: Absolutely. And we banned them here in Canada in baby bottles. We banned BPA, mm-hmm. but probably not BPS, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. It's crazy. Um, there is another chemical that you talked about as well. So years ago, I read the ingredients on my face wash. Polysorbate 80 was in there before I use. Mm-hmm. Now I use apple cider vinegar to wash my face. But, um, right, um There was this, like, one with a big ingredient list, and then I noticed it. I think it was in shampoo as well, and then I went to buy Mm -hmm. pickles for my little Mm -hmm. kid and noticed Mm -hmm. that polysorbate 80 was in pickles. What's up with that?
0: Right, so I talk about this in the chapter in my book on the microbiota, and the microbiota is the collection, there's trillions of bacterial cells that live in and on us, and they're vital to our health. And I specifically look at the gut microbiota because obviously it's crucially affected by the foods we eat and don't eat. Polysorbate 80 is a preservative that is in so many of our foods, and it actually has been shown to disrupt the microbiota. And what scientists are finding is that with all these kinds of additives to our foods, the microbiota is shifting so that we're having more of these sort of unhealthy aggressive bacterial strains in the gut versus the more fragile species which are protective highly protective to our health and it's shifting the balance and causing um, a whole cascade of event of um, effects in the body that are really bad because we're finding that the microbiota is so crucial for our overall health and of course what we eat and don't eat is going to change dramatically the composition of the the microbiota.
1: And so, polysorbate eighty works on that; like it affects it.
0: Yeah. So it's just another. It's just like one of many chemicals that disrupts the optimal functioning of the microbiota. And there's so many different ways. Um, I think that I talk about polysorbate eighty. I talk about The gums like xanthan gum and guar gum, Mm -hmm. um, these are really common even in organic foods. You'll often see like guar gum. And the researchers studying that found a a similar effect where it was killing off these guar gums and xanthan gums were killing off the more fragile beneficial species in the gut and um, causing these hardier, more aggressive ones to sort of replicate and take over the gut. And what it was doing is, is eating away at the intestinal, the mucosal lining. And so that wears away the integrity of the gut barrier function. And then you start to see all these kinds of gastrointestinal um, illnesses as a result. And I, I asked um, the researcher, well, are you looking at like, say, guar gum and polysorbate 80 and artificial sweeteners and, um, you know, on um, various herbicide and, and uh, pesticide residues in combination in the gut because that's what we're all taking in. He said, no, it's very difficult. We first have to study each one, but it's true that we're all taking in combinations all the time and we don't know what those are doing altogether. So that's, a, that's another scary um, facet and all the more reason to really try to avoid as many of them as, as we can.
1: Right, because they could be interacting together and causing these problems. Right. I will let listeners uh, read the book if you're interested more in the microbiota because it's really a big part of the book, and it it really scared me and made me want to get a poop transplant. Um, <laughs> I Googled that after I read the book. I'm like, oh, my gosh, should I should I look into this? Because um, right. I think I have one of the factors that may have got rid of the infantis.
0: Is that the, um, the C? The B
1: infantis. B infantis, yeah, that's, that's the right. one. Right. Yeah, so right. That's so really that's scary. a
0: that's a strain of, of bacteria that's been basically rendered extinct in the entire Western world. That was at one time the dominant bacterial strain in the infant gut. So this was the, the strain that dominated the infant gut for all of our evolution and was highly protective. But since, you know, industrialization of food has had a big role in it, but it's been um, because some people have had C-sections, we have this you know, huge increase in antibiotic use, and um, of course, the first processed food, which I talk about a lot in the book, which is infant formula. So, those three factors over the course of the past two to three generations have made this one strain, B. infantis, instinct, extinct. And what the researchers that I spoke to at UC Davis, who are looking really carefully at this, have found is that. When the baby has B. infantis, it basically crowds out all the other bacterial strains in the gut, and it's highly protective, not only from acute illness, but from long-term health issues, like things like diabetes, obesity, allergies, um, maybe even cancer. So, you know, so it's, it, to me, this is one of the most shocking findings of the book, because it shows just how drastically the industrialization of our food supply has changed our body, like literally changed our bodies from the inside out.
1: It fits right, right in with zero waste. It's like, just stay away from packaged food. Don't trust you know, big corporations to feed you. You should trust yourself. Right. Uh, but that actually leads to, I'm going to jump ahead here a little bit, but that leads to some roles that you pointed out. And I want to talk about that a little bit because our listenership is a lot of uh, millennial educated women, and you do go into something kind of controversial, I think, about women and our role that we used to have providing mm-hmm. nourishment. Yeah, which is is a crazy kind of thing to think about because, you know, back in the day um, when women sort of stayed at home, they'd be feeding and preparing food. And now we rely on corporations mm-hmm. to feed right. us. Right. So
0: I make the argument in the book that in many ways the industrial food system really undermined the the skill and, you know, there was a lot of work and skill and even craft, you know, craftsmanship in terms of the kinds of cooking and baking and food preparation and gardening too, um, you know, many women had kitchen gardens and they had, you know, very, you know, chickens and things that they raised and then they prepared all the foods in the house for their families. That was definitely a lot of work, and I'm not suggesting that women should go back to doing that, um, unless, of course, they want to, but that they should do it on their own. I think that people need to work together with your partner, if it's your husband, if it's your same-sex partner, if it's your community, whatever it is. um, I think people need to kind of uh, reclaim it because I think it is a very powerful Skill. And so what I, I look at the history in the book in terms of how the industrial food system undermined that skill and sort of stepped in for the role of what was traditionally the women the women's work and took over them and used it as a form of liberation by saying, like, look, we'll do all the cooking for you in the home. This is the industry talking. Mm-hmm. And you can go off to work or you can, um, you know, have time to do whatever you need to do. But the problem is, is that they weren't necessarily, it wasn't necessarily good intentions. Obviously, it was all about profit for them. And as a result, we've seen our health deteriorate, because when you don't cook at home, you're relying on these chem- these corporations to do so. And obviously, the content of those foods is uh, not nearly what it would be ha- if you cook yourself. And so, you know, and I talk about how what I think needs to happen is a more radical kind of approach to this. if you're going to be the person, whoever it is, if it's man or woman, doesn't matter, doing all the work in the home with cooking and cleaning and shopping, this is a tremendous amount of work. And if you have a baby and you're breastfeeding, I mean, tremendous amount of work. um, Why don't we pay people to do that work in the home? Why, like, why can't we incentivize that for people to be healthy and do what is some of the most important work you'll ever do, which is creating a new life nourishing a new life, making the, that child healthy. And also those kinds of things transfer along the generation. So this is the other thing. People have lost the knowledge base for how to cook basic things in the home. Mm-hmm. And that's really sad. I think many people my age and, and younger um, grew up in homes where people no one cooked um, and they don't have those skills. And those are skills that have to be learned and taught. So this is something I think we need to really kind of focus on if we want to improve the the public health.
1: Absolutely. It's been devalued when people stay at home and cook. There's there's no... Like, yeah, you're right. You don't get paid for it. But this is huge in packaging, too. So uh, I pack my kid a zero-waste lunch every day. He's seven. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I know that some of his friends have a lot of things in packaging, like these fruit roll-up things and granola bars and stuff like that, where I just take a little bit of time. Like, we don't have – we have a television, but we don't have, like, cable or whatever or satellite or anything. So we do spend Mm -hmm. a lot of time, like, prepping food. And it is – it takes time, but it's kind of fun. It does. And we know that Mm -hmm. it's healthy. And then we know right. that there's no packaging so that we don't have to right. produce garbage. So it's all related, all of this stuff, which oh, I yeah. think is just absolutely fascinating. Um, it and would.
0: You, I was going to ask, when your kid goes to school with that kind of lunch, does he have a hard time with his peers? Um, do people like make fun of him yes. or anything like that? Yes.
1: Oh. So oh. there, there were some girls, and he says, you know, the girls in the class are really mean, and they say my sandwich is gross because um, I, I try and eat vegan and vegetarian as much as possible. But mm-hmm. for him, I give him a little bit of meat, yeah. um, and so he had like a roast beef sandwich one day because I cook this roast, and then I like, I get it zero waste in a container, and then I cut it up and then freeze half of it, and then he's got like lunch meat for two weeks that isn't right. the processed lunch right. meat, so it works really well. But then yeah, he's he's come home and and said comments but then he'll also say things like yeah they eat like the other kids eat a lot of candy and and stuff like that and we try and talk about it and say well it's you know that's okay like they might not know or their parents might not have time because um, what we're saying about this whole women thing is like once we're I mean, we're working and we're taking care of kids right. and we're doing all these things and trying to take care of ourselves. Where are we going right. to have the time to grow a wild yeast starter and make our own bread, which I do. Right, exactly. <laughs> <But> right. <laughs> it, right. It takes no, a it's, time. No,
0: it's a challenge. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I want to go back to some of the points that you made in the book. It was so disturbing about the, the gut bacteria, just because I think that I'm, I'm part of that, that, you know, it doesn't exist mm-hmm. anymore. And I think I know someone in the Navy, actually, who probably has good gut bacteria, because if you know on ships, if somebody gets sick, everybody gets sick. Right. And so we would have these times on the ship where everybody would be down with a horrible flu. And then this uh, one guy that grew up in, like, rural Quebec on the ocean, like, super healthy food, like, probably never ate packaged food or anything like that, um, right. he would never get sick, ever. Like, oh, I, wow. I knew yeah. him for years and protected. years. protected. Yeah. He would get up mm-hmm. and do everybody's shift. Like, he would take care of the whole ship, basically. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's amazing. He just didn't get sick. And so I just wonder, you know, if that's the thing. Um, but anyway, so there are a lot of companies that make micro changes right? So they'll say, Mm -hmm. I think New York has something like by 2030, we're going to try to be zero waste or something. Um, So why are those changes not good enough?
0: Yeah. So one of my big critiques in the book is about what's called the quote unquote food movement. Um, And of course they've done a lot of amazing things and have raised awareness tremendously. And I respect many people in that movement. But the problem is, is when you just sort of tweak around the edges of the industry um, like, for example, I, I think I talk about how Walmart was going to start using cage-free eggs in 2020 in the book, and, um, but instead of using local producers who are already raising their chickens really well – they're just going to have the industrial egg farmers make some little changes where they have these open air barn, barns, essentially. So the chickens are not in cages, but they're by no means being raised naturally, like how they should be on no, grass.
1: They don't have space to move, right? They can barely no, walk. There's they, like a
0: tiny they're exit. They're just crammed in. Yeah. But it will say cage free on the on the label, so again, this is very deceptive, but it points to your question, which is when you make small changes like that, where you say, "Oh, we're going to switch to cage free eggs, and I think I think McDonald's might have done it too, but Walmart definitely said it was going to do it by twenty twenty. It doesn't make any actual change to the underlying issues we have with the industrialization of our food. It just sort of makes these token changes that consumers See a label, they'll think it's okay because who could blame them? You, you know, it says one thing, but it's actually it's actually not, and that undermines a more a bigger, more politicized movement. And that's what I'm calling for in the book. Is I feel like, you know, you and with your child, and me and with my child, and all the parents everywhere, like we have. To protect our children from these foods and it shouldn't just be the people that know about it you know have because it's, it's a, that's a very small percentage of the population right now so my hope is that we can Um, raise awareness enough so that enough people know about it and then want to be involved in making demanding changes at the policy level, demanding changes of our politicians so that it's not so tricky to navigate the supermarket and navigate how to pick foods for yourself and your family. You know, we shouldn't be expected to try to have to understand all these complex issues just when making basic choices about feeding our families. And so that we need to change that fundamentally
1: hmm So would you recommend listeners start writing letters, for example, to their politician or even to the grocery store
0: to start? I think it's a good start. I mean, again, like I think consumer, you obviously have to make decisions every day about what to feed your family, and you should be as, have, be armed with as much knowledge as you can. And so reading my book and reading other books like that will help. And then, but what I'm hoping is <clears throat> with that awareness, then we can sort of create a mass a massive movement where we can come together and, and do kind of like protests and direct action protests. And yes, writing to your politicians, calling your politicians, um, you know, demanding that the regulatory agencies do their job and protect the safety of our food and, and our health.
1: hmm. And Nixon banned celebrity endorsement for cigarettes decades ago. Uh, would that help in terms of maybe banning advertising for like children's cereal yeah. or, or something?
0: Absolutely. I mean, I think that that's, you know, I end my book with a, a manifesto and one of my, one of my key points is that we need to stop advertising, especially to children, these poor quality foods and especially celebrities. I, in in many European countries, celebrities can't endorse. Junk foods and sodas and things like that to kids. And I think that that would be one of the, the key ways to start that here would be to stop celebrities and and stop the advertising of the most harmful foods to kids who we know are very easily influenced
1: And during the Super Bowl, Peter Dinklage, Game of Thrones star, and also, Mm -hmm. I think it was Morgan Freeman, they did this commercial for Doritos and Pepsi. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Do you? And I was like, no, like, I know you guys make money. Like, do you really need this money to be promoted? (laughs) I'm
0: always saying that same thing. Like, you have plenty of money, you're an actor, you're a famous actor. Do you need to do these endorsements for these terrible foods that are making people sick i don't understand yeah. why and
1: then you know those chip bags aren't recyclable so if you eat a bag of chips right. it's not going to be healthy for you but then that's going to go to a landfill and sit there for probably like 200 years because I it doesn't know. break down right so like do you really need those uh yeah. ah, it's just so frustrating um, it is frustrating but um were there other chemicals that you found in packaging that are concerning other than bpa that are like touching our food
0: oh yeah there's <laughs> There are many, many uh, hundreds, actually. Um, So any kind of plastic packaging is going to have chemicals in it that, that make, to make the plastic do what the manufacturer needs it to do to protect the food. So many of them are are not known. We don't even know because they're called proprietary information so the company won't tell you what's in them. But the the ones that I there are there are quite a few that I highlight in the book and so but I mean just for a consumer to understand basically you want to avoid plastic packaging period because any plastic pa- packaging has what researchers call estrogenic activity so this is this means that the chemicals in the plastic are like the hormone estrogen in our bodies which is a very potent um, chemical uh, hormone but these chemicals mimic that hormone and so they mm-hmm. interfere with the whole endocrine system and that's true for adults and it's especially concerning for children and babies and fetuses in the womb so this is why it's best to avoid all plastic packaging and and remember too that many um like you know cardboard milk carton for example is lined with um, a plastic derivative so Mm -hmm. it's really important to just try to just use glass as much as you can for your um you know storage storage and for what you purchase absolutely but again like it's very hard and and i I um I want to emphasize, you know, people listening because it's very hard to completely avoid packaging. I mean, I can't even I don't you it sounds like you do it, but I don't know that I can do it and that that's why I feel so strongly that the manufacturers and the chemical manufacturers need to be held responsible for what they're putting in the packaging so that it's safer for all of us.
1: Absolutely, I totally agree. And actually, uh, Adrian Parr goes as far to say that it's a crime against humanity to destroy our climate and and food systems. Right? You wrote a little bit about that.
0: hmm I yeah, I really believe that. I mean, a thing that people often forget is that like whatever we do to our environment, we do to our bodies too. So you mentioned the Dorito package that ends up in landfill for hundreds of years. Well, it's true of any any product you buy that's in a package, and then you throw the package out. It's going to end up in the environment, and then it, whatever chemicals and things are in that product, are um, in that package rather, are going to end up in our environment, and then it ends up back in your body ultimately at some point. It's just like even if you buy organics, um, but the vast majority of Americans don't, and those pesticides and herbicides and fungicides are sprayed all over the crops and they end up in the soil and the air and the water, um, obviously that ends up back in your body even if you buy organic. So it's this broader issue, and it affects all of us.
1: So what do you eat, Kristen? Like what is a typical <laughs> – do you have go-to kind of meals?
0: We do, and we we meal plan because it makes it so much easier in thinking about when you come home from work and you're or at the end of a day and you're tired and you know what you're going to eat, and that really helps. So we make a, a meal plan once a week, then we go shopping for those foods specifically and then we have everything in the fridge, and that's how we eat. Um, I eat a lot of eggs. That's one of my kind of go-to, and it's really important for baby and children, health and development. And we eat eggs and a lot and a lot of butter, but we also eat tons of vegetables, a lot of leafy greens. We eat a lot of, like, big dinner salads with, like, beans and some cheese. Um, we eat fish. But, again, fish is tricky because it's hard to find you have to get you know, really responsibly caught, wild-caught fish, that can be hard to find sometimes. Um, Mm -hmm. We also eat uh, grass-fed, you know, animal products, poultry and beef and pork, but it has to be like, we have to know where it's coming from, know the farm has responsible practices, is raising the animals humanely, um, you know, taking care of the land, not using any harmful chemicals on the land. So, But it's basic foods, you know, it's like, it's eggs and vegetables and and we eat some fruit and we eat some beans and we eat some steaks and, you know, like it's just basic whole foods and we don't have like our pantry, like if you look in our pantry, there's no like snacks per se that you would typically identify as snacks, but we do have like, we have nuts And I'll make like, I make crackers myself that we use and we have like good cheeses from the farmer's market, you know, like stuff like those are snacks. Mm -hmm.
1: It's like normal food, right? It's not packaged.
0: (laughs) It is, but it's to a lot of people it seems weird because it's not what's in the grocery store.
1: And I hope that we can change that because people are people are not healthy right now, and especially their mental health. And I worry that some of this BPA and you know hormone disrupting stuff is leading to some of our mental health problems. So uh, I hope
0: sure, it's all connected. Yeah,
1: I do think it's all connected. Absolutely. What can people do who mm-hmm. probably don't have healthy gut bacteria anymore?
0: Well, this is a <laughs> this is a tricky thing, but I think the number one thing is to really make sure your diet is as healthful and you know, as possible. So that means eating tons of um, vegetables and, and uh, things that are full of fiber, but also the animal products are really important to bacteria gut health too. Um, but eating fermented foods like pickles and yogurt and kimchi and sauerkraut like kombucha, all these fermented foods add beneficial bacteria to the gut. Um, in some cases, you can do like a targeted probiotic if you know, if you know but it's hard because it's hard to navigate what's on grocery store shelves. But there are some you do some research and find out how to do that to sort of like to jumpstart. But ultimately, it's all about the food. So just back to natural, whole, or, and organic foods as much as possible and adding those fermented foods in.
1: Awesome. Great advice. That's Kristen Lawless. She's the author of Formally Known as Food. Kristen, thank you so much for talking with us today, and you can buy your book, uh, I believe anywhere you can buy books, right? Amazon, um, Barnes & Noble, all those places. Um, It's really cool to check out, and it's very eye-opening. So thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Take care, Kristen. Okay, you too. Bye. 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 This week
1: on my countdown to zero waste, I started making tortillas at home with zero waste ingredients and without all those preservatives and questionable ingredients that come in grocery store tortillas wrapped in plastic. Don't forget to subscribe to the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast on whichever platform you listen in on. And you can follow me on Instagram at zero underscore waste underscore countdown. And if you're interested in becoming a patron of the show, you can find us on Podbean and click the button that says become a patron, or you can click the little red button that says reward.
0: Change starts now.
1: This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast. (laughs)